what's up everybody? Welcome to the Hotshot Wake Up. This is your weekly wildfire update. If you're paying attention to the wildfire news, you know that Canada has been very, very busy. Parts of the United States have been busy, but it's not as widespread as what's going on up in Canada, specifically Alberta and what's happening in British Columbia. Florida has been busy. They have two large fires going on down there. New Mexico and Arizona are seeing like a spattering of smaller fires. They have had a couple that are reaching that 1,000 acre size, but these things are getting caught before they take off and, and really cause problems. California saw a couple small ones, 20, 30, 40 acres the last couple days. Same with Minnesota and Wisconsin. Even Maine had a couple smaller fires, but in the United States, we're not seeing that full-blown wildfire season just yet. And really, it's not that surprising, especially with how busy the spring seasons have been the last couple years. It's only May 13th, and you know I'm not taken aback or surprised that fire season hasn't really started off. When I started my fire career, you were lucky to get a couple fires in May, and then once June rolled around, you knew you were going to be busy. But let's cover what's going on in the United States and in Canada with wildfires. Right now, the preparedness level nationally in the United States is at two. There were 81 new fires in the last 24 hours. There's only two large fires currently in the United States, and one of those fires was contained recently. The southern area is on top with a couple. There's this major fire that's down in Florida. It's burning in kind of a wilderness area. The southern area blue team is headed that way. They're saying it's 10 miles northwest of Astor, Florida, burning in that southern rough component. There was some pretty extreme fire behavior for a while, but then some seasonal weather came in. And if you fought fire down in Florida before, you wake up, you fight fire in the morning, the ocean kicks in a bunch of moisture, it rains and lightnings for about an hour, then it clears up and everybody's fighting fire again. There's also this sandy fire. It's on the big Cypress National Preserve. We've talked about this as well. 22 miles northeast of Carnstown, Florida. Again, this southern rough component, tall grass, hardwood litter component. This one is pushing 11,000 plus acres at this point in time. Still growing, but they do have some containment. They are doing some burning to try to box this thing in. It has been quite successful where they are burning. Currently, there's 162 people on that fire and a total cost of $3.1 million. So this is a fairly expensive fire and being run by the National Park Service. On the other side, the major fire, they too, they're pulling some people in. There's 74 firefighters on that fire. Current cost of $1.1 million, and that is approaching 3,000 acres on that fire. If we shoot down to the southwest area, they're at a PL2 for that region. They had 15 new fires in the last 24 hours. Two of those, they are calling large incidents. There's this Lost Tujas fire or Tusis fire. And then there was this Rosedale fire as well. This Lost Tusis fire was burning near where the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak burn scar was. And we have some news coming out on that fire next. We'll jump right into that after this operational update. But it burned quick. It was very, very windy when this fire started. There have been some murmurs down there. There have been some meetings with some volunteer departments and others talking about, hey, we think we have an arsonist running around down here lighting fires. A few days ago, maybe four or five days ago, some firefighters down there and managers down there reached out and said, hey, we had five, maybe six fires all within an hour right off the highway. And, you know, we don't think it was because someone was dragging a tow chain or anything. We think someone's maybe starting these things. But these fires are under investigation. The Rosedale fire was 505 acres. That one's pretty much wrapped up. There's 200 people on the Las Tusas fire already costing $402,000. Maybe when that one's wrapped up, it'll be closer to a million. And other than that, in the United States, there's not anything really of note. There's some small ones, again, like I said, over in California. But these are small fires that are being caught quickly. And in those northern states that border Canada, where it's windy, the snow is starting to melt, and those spring grasses are starting to show up that are dead from last fall, and the greenup hasn't happened yet, they're catching 100-acre fires, 80-acre fires as well. If you move up to Canada, however, they are incredibly busy. As we've been writing about on the Substack and our Substack-only episode, 
that took place on Wednesday. We were talking about all the crews that are being sent up there. As of right now, I think it's 10 hotshot crews have been sent up there. A couple Oregon Department of Forestry have been sent up there as well. They're also scrapping to get a couple more Type 2IA crews up there. And a lot of them have already started their way or are across the border. They're also asking for some incident management teams to go across the border as well. But they are struggling on getting that put together. Basically, there's rules and regulations on what is allowed and what the acceptable policy is to get people across the border. Basically, you have to be a federal employee, but you can't be AD. You have to have a passport. You can't have a DUI. And you have to have a commitment for a certain amount of time. And they're trying to scramble to put these teams together. And they are scouring the nation, trying to get teams together. And they're not having a whole lot of luck with that. They were able to get these crews put together. But when it comes to those high-complexity incident management teams, they're just struggling to get numbers of folks and put them together on a team to go. When it comes to what's happening up in Canada, they were saying yesterday there were 70 fires burning uncontrolled just in Alberta. Now, if you pull up what is the SIT report for Canada, it hasn't been updated for three days, it looks like. But it still gives us a pretty good idea of what's going on and probably where a lot of these hotshot crews are going to go. They list their priority fires up there. There's a fire called the Pasqua Fire. It's near Fox Lake. They're saying that's 16,400 hectares, which is around 41,000 acres. So there are a lot of large fires up in Alberta. They currently list it as out of control. In the United States, we would call that uncontained. There's a grizzly complex. Multiple fires at 8,100 hectares, 56,000 hectares. So this thing's huge. It's over 100,000 acres and 19,000 hectares in size as well. So the Grizzly Complex seems to be one of the bigger ones up there that'll probably get a lot of resources. There's a Sturgeon Lake Complex. It's southeast of Sturgeon Lake on the Cree Nation. And the fire's up there estimated 3,700 hectares and 1,200 hectares in size. So large, large fires when you're looking at acreage. There's a Deer Creek complex across from Parkland and Yellowhead counties. These ones are the ones that kind of made the news with the town halls that took place and just the frustrated citizens that were dealing with the response to all of that. And we, again, we covered that on the Wednesday only Substack episode. If you want to hear, you know, what's happening locally up in Canada with their residents and how the response is going. We play some of the town hall clips that took place, and clearly there are some agitated people. The fires up there are 9,800 hectares, 2,400 and 5,000. So again, fires well over 10,000 acres, multiple in that one complex. The Rainbow Lake, I believe that's where Pioneer Peak hotshots are going. I could be wrong, but I think that's what I read. 17,399 hectares in size, so another monster wildfire when we're talking acreage. And the list continues to go on. In British Columbia, they also have some fires. There's the Boundary Lake water fire. It's east of Fort John, estimated at 5,900 hectares in size. That's 15,000 acres. So large, large fire burning up there. There's the Red Creek fire in British Columbia at nearly 3,000 hectares. And a Terra Creek that's east of McBride estimated at 1,100 hectares as well. Canada is very, very busy. If you look at their national preparedness level, they're at four, bumped it to five is from what I'm reading. And they're saying significant wildfire activity is occurring in one or more agencies. And multiple incident management teams are actively engaged. Even Saskatchewan is at a preparedness level three, and they don't even have much news coming out of Saskatchewan on what's going on up there. But obviously, there's fires happening. They say at the time of writing their report, there are aircraft personnel and equipment that have been mobilized to Alberta from British Columbia, the Yukon, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick. And also, you have folks from Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Colorado, like all of these places are headed up there as well. One thought on that 
is if the United States starts seeing some wildfire activity, the other crews that are doing project work or are just coming on, uh, there's a lot of prescribed burning happening in the United States as well. They're going to get sucked up real quick. Like just the fires that are happening down in the Southwest, they're pulling in crews fast. Every new start down there is getting, you know, at least a few tankers called to it, air attack, lead planes, engines, crews, and they're getting pulled down there. Geronimo hotshots went out to a fire. Santa Fe hotshots are on a fire and others are getting pulled in. Even if these fires aren't, you know, these monsters from Calf Canyon and, you know, the black fire from last year that pushed all sorts of acres and lasted months and months. These smaller fires are still pulling in resources. That's basically it for the operational update. There is news that came out on what's going on with the communities down in New Mexico with the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak rebuild, I guess I'll call it, and all of this FEMA money. And a little background on that if you're unaware or if you're a listener and you don't know what's happening down there. So last year, the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak fire, largest fire in New Mexico history, romped and romped and romped, almost a half a billion dollars plus in just straight suppression costs. And it devastated the community. It was two escaped, it was an escape prescribed fire and escaped pile burn that converged together and created this behemoth of a wildfire. Then the governor of New Mexico made a decree saying, hey, the federal government's got to pay for 100% of this because they're responsible. There needed to be damage control. The president of the United States flew down there and said, yes, we'll take care of it. I'm going to put FEMA on it and FEMA will take care of all of that. So the question is, where are we now? On all of that, and I said I would follow up on this, so that's exactly what I'm doing. There's this article out of Source New Mexico, written by Patrick Lohman, that does a follow-up on what's going on with all of this repayments, funding, and how it's all going with FEMA. And from the sounds of it, it's not going well. And again, on uh, our Substack, this was probably about a year ago, maybe 10 and a half months ago, I wrote an article just saying, hey, this is probably not going to go well, and the community's already pissed off. And it seems like the bureaucracy of this all is is slowing it all down. And then we covered the legislation that was trying to be passed that was going to speed all these things up. But of course, Congress isn't getting much done these days. And we're about to default on our national debt. They'll probably scramble in the last seconds available to try to fix that. But it's really not a surprise. And like I'm saying, on the Substack, we wrote about it at least 10 and a half, 11 months ago. The article is, Our communities cannot wait any longer. New Mexico delegation rips FEMA on the delays in fire payments. It says, Three members of the New Mexico congressional delegation on Wednesday sent a letter to top officials with the Federal Emergency Management Agency criticizing the agency for delays and disturbing several billions of dollars to those who are still struggling to recover from the biggest wildfire in state history. FEMA has opened a field office and is reaching out to victims of the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire, ignited by the United States Forest Service after two botched prescribed burns. FEMA is tasked with paying out $3.95 billion in aid approved by Congress last year. So again, this money has been approved. It's kind of like this Infrastructure and Inflation Reduction Act funding that was supposed to go out to firefighters and it took forever you know, two, two and a half years, and there's still some people who haven't received the appropriate compensation. So this was $3.95 billion, and folks are still waiting for that money. It says the agency has missed several self-imposed deadlines. Not a very big surprise. Again, we wrote about it and said, uh, their timelines aren't really, I'd be shocked if they, if they made those. But it says it has missed those deadlines in making payments, which are intended to fully compensate victims for the federal government's errors more than a year ago. And FEMA has not yet established final rules that will govern what compensation will cover. So they they haven't even decided what the rules and policy are going to be for people to get this money. And it was approved a year ago. And people are like, hey, but... You know, my house burned down. Why Why can't I get money? And then there's like weird rules again attached to this. 
Now, I'm not going to say I'm an expert on this, but I've read a little bit of it. And basically, they don't want you to make any improvements to your property before you get FEMA money. Otherwise, you're no longer able to get the FEMA money. So if you need a new roof, but you start building the roof and you want to be compensated afterwards by FEMA, they're like, no, you are rebuild the roof by yourself. So now you don't get money for it. There's a bunch of little stuff like that. And of course, there's going to be a lot of problems along the way. And so far, it seems like nothing has even gone through. The delays have frustrated members of New Mexico's congressional delegation who secured the $3.95 billion last year. U.S. Representative Teresa Fernandez and Senator Martin Henrik and Ben Ray LaJuan sent a letter urging FEMA to move faster and to provide an update to the delegation on where the claims office stands. Quote, our communities cannot wait any longer. Every day that passes without compensation to the victims delays their ability to begin rebuilding after losing so much. And that's exactly what I was just talking about. There's rules about when you can rebuild and when you can't. And if you start rebuilding, then you're basically forfeiting the FEMA money that is being provided to you. And then you start going down a rabbit hole and it's like, well, are they delaying payments in hopes that people will start rebuilding and then they don't have to pay them? I don't know, but there's a lot of residents who think that's what's happening, and there's a lot of representatives from New Mexico that are starting to lean in that direction and say, hey, there's people who want to rebuild their homes, but if they start rebuilding their homes, they're not going to be able to collect money. What's going on? He continues saying, FEMA officials asked about the letter by Source New Mexico, said in a statement that it could take several more months to issue the final rules a timeline the agency said it does not control. But officials said FEMA has processed hundreds of comments it received about how the office should distribute the funds, and they feel they can address many of the commenters' concerns while the final rules are being finalized. Now, this is something we've talked about at length on the Substack and on the podcast, which is these public comment periods. Now, there's a time and place for these, and I understand that. I'm not here to blanket it and say that they're all bad, but... I've been involved in a lot of public comment periods, and I know that it is a way to waste time, and it's a way to bog the system down, whether on purpose or not, because when you have a federal public comment period, the agency in charge has to legally respond to every comment proposed or submitted. So if they get 300,000 comments, they have to pay people to go through these comments and individually answer all of them. So they're saying, hey, this isn't our fault. People submitted too many comments, and we just, we're still going through them all, and we can't give out money until we get done reading all of the comments. And that's why I dog on bureaucracy. Like, I'm not a hater of government in some cases, you know? Like, I understand the purpose of it. But the bureaucracy of government really slows a lot of stuff down, and it slows what would be the benefits of government down by just bogging the system down with paperwork really and even in this day and age it's digital stuff but it's still it's paperwork it says overall this is the fastest that the agency has implemented a brand new program of this size said a fema spokesperson the agency also announced previously that it would make a partial payment to fire victims based on simple claims for damages even while the final rules are still pending and FEMA has hired a team of navigators from the New Mexico state to assist people making claims. Claims Officer Director Angela Gladwell told a packed lecture hall in Mora last month that federal rulemaking is difficult and time-consuming. Yeah, absolutely it is. The rules must be approved by FEMA, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Office of Management and Budget, she said. And the OPM is... is what a lot of folks have said slowed down the payments to firefighters. And whenever they would ask for help from their agencies, they would say, hey, you, you have to talk to the OPM. It's not up to us. The OPM is making all the rules. So that's not just with the Forest Service and the Department of the Interior. It seems like that goes with FEMA as well. The claims officer said, and they need to prioritize it across all the rules in the federal government. We are working with those partners as much as possible to expedite the process. The letter said FEMA 
has told the New Mexico delegation that delays are due to the bureaucratic wrangling of a couple of rules that have sparked anger among fire survivors, including ones that caps the payments for destroyed trees at 25% of the pre-fire value. So there's people who lost a bunch of trees on their property. They're saying you owe me more than 25% of the cost of what that timber is. And sounds like FEMA's like, no, we don't. We don't owe you more than that. And then you get lawyers involved and they're like, well, the federal government started these fires, so you should pay 100%. And that's what the governor of New Mexico said. And then the president of the United States flew down and said, we will pay 100% for everything. And yeah, I had commentary on it months and months ago being like, "Uh, I'm a little skeptical. (laughs) I'm a little skeptical about how this is all going to go. But I was hopeful that it would happen. But now we're to the point going through this, it's almost mid-May of 2023, and this is what we're dealing with. It continues saying, that rule was copied and pasted from the last time a federal agency botched a prescribed burn in New Mexico and then sought to compensate those for their lost homes. The Cerro Grand Fire Assistance Act in 2001 was enacted after an escaped National Park Service burn happened near Los Alamos, destroyed hundreds of homes, many of them suburban neighborhoods. FEMA officials have acknowledged that the cap on payments for trees is not well suited for victims of the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon wildfire who rely on trees and timber for income and heat and often compromise those biggest losses for many rural families with hundreds or thousands of acres of private forest. They've also suggested the cap will be lifted in the final rules, but everybody's waiting. Everybody's waiting to say, what are the final rules going to be? We just want to rebuild here. They included the cap on tree payments as they rushed to meet the congressional deadline of 45 days to publish interim rules, the FEMA officials said. It would have taken months, they explained, to write a completely new set of rules and so choose to use the previous set as a template. Now, again, when we are talking about new rule sets and new policy, this is basically mirrored bureaucratic work that took place with the new job series. And hopefully that's been corrected now. But again, on the Substack, we covered this and on the podcast where they tried to make this new wildland firefighter series. And halfway through, people started reading through it and were like, hey, you just copied and pasted this from the old series. And they're like, well, yeah, I would have taken a long time to write a new one. And it's like, yeah, but you guys were mandated by law to write a new one. And they're like, yeah, you're right. You caught us. Sorry. All right. Well, it's going to take a really long time now. And that's how we're going to do it. Sounds like FEMA did the same thing. And whether this is something that's done on purpose or just people being people and being like, hey, we want to help people. So let's just copy and paste it and get this money out the door. Ultimately, it makes it take longer because people notice that you've copied and pasted what used to be and you're calling it something new and then lawyers get involved and you get sued and then you're like okay fine we'll do it we'll do it the right way then and then you're a year later and people still have burned out homes waiting for money to get to get paid the article says the delegation's letter to fema asked the agency to eliminate the cap on payments for trees as well as a limit on payments to households who spent money reducing future risks of floods and wildfires on their property Quote, it's a holdover from a different catastrophe impacting suburban homes, not an economy based on forests, the members of Congress wrote. We reiterate the importance of removing these caps. FEMA did not respond to questions about whether any specific interim rules are to blame for the delays in the final rule approval. The agency received 300 public comments and held six meetings between mid-November and early January to solicit feedback on the interim rules. Dozens of these comments took issue primarily with the limit on payments for trees. Delays have deepened mistrust with the agency, the letter states. Many residents are already frustrated by FEMA's delays and denials in its immediate response to disaster, including the rollout of its program to house survivors in FEMA trailers and mobile homes. The victims don't have permanent homes anymore, the Congress wrote. Their economic livelihood has been destroyed, and the floods will be making the matters much worse. So a fantastic update from Source New Mexico. 
basically, it's everything that I said was coming, even though it was kind of disappointing to make that prediction almost a year ago, and just how it all unfolded, because I've seen it before. It's not like I have some magic crystal ball that I peer into and I'm like, oh, okay, that's what the future is going to hold. It's like, no, I keep up on this stuff and I've seen it play out before and it always seems to end this way. Again, I'm not blaming individuals for this. There is a bureaucratic machine that chugs along slowly and then people are pressed by deadlines and they say, hey, let's just copy and paste the old stuff and put it down and pass it as new. That's laziness, and you know a lot of people would call it borderline fraud, especially people who have lost their homes. They would probably categorize it that way. Is it malicious? Well, we could break that apart. What would malicious mean in terms of this situation? And it's what homeowners are saying, and, and some of these representatives have alluded to a little bit, but they're not really hammering it that much. But the community is. And it's basically saying you're not going to pay us fairly for what we lost, even though you're the ones who started these fires, and you're delaying payments, which means we can't rebuild our homes because we lose the chance to reimburse ourselves with FEMA funds if we start improving our property. And that's why the delegation went in and said, hey, there's people who are improving their property right now, and you need to pay them for that as well. And so... What's that going to do? Is it going to slow them down even more? I don't know. FEMA's saying they got 300 comments, and the latest comments came in in January. Now it's mid-May, and they're saying, hey, the comments bogged us down. Plus, you know, yes, you caught us copying and pasting, you know, 2001 policy over to 2023 policy. And yeah, it probably doesn't fit this situation. So everybody just hold their horses. And this is after... The massive amount of fanfare that took place when the president of the United States flew down there and gave a speech saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay everybody. Everybody gets paid. Don't worry about it. And even then, the local articles were like, we can't believe this until we see it. And it's kind of the ongoing trend when it comes to these things now is there's just a lot of promises made. And I think a lot of Americans realize that, that there's a lot of promises made and you you can hear those promises and be hopeful about them. But if you are an individual who lost their home or you heat your home with timber and then you sell some timber off to, you know, pay for your property and and other things, groceries, that's how you make your living. And a prescribed fire took that all away from you. And now you still haven't seen a dime for that. You are going to start getting very, very bitter and angry at the people who are, in charge of the process to deliver you the relief that you were promised. Will we see this resolved by summertime, maybe? Maybe by next fall? We don't know. It's it, it's like FEMA said. They're like, it's not up to us. It's up to the OPM, the Department of Homeland Security, and, and you know, 300 comments really bogged us down. So we don't really have a timeline going forward. So it, it is. It's just up in the air. We don't know when this is going to get settled. But when it does, or if anything else comes up, I'm going to update on that. Coming up, we're going to talk about all of the chainsaw injuries that happened last year. There was a report put out on that. It's just a quick little report, but I think it's worth covering. And then we're going to talk about this new legislation that was passed, excuse me, introduced, that is pushing for leased aircraft to be able to transport firefighters. Right now, leased aircraft can do suppression work, like they can do helicopter bucket work, or they can do retardant drops or water drops on fire, but legally, they're not allowed to transport firefighters. You have to have an agency aircraft to do that. Well, there's a bipartisan piece of legislation that was introduced recently that is asking for that to be waived and have leased aircraft be able to transport firefighters in and out of fire. So that's coming up next. First, I'd like to thank all of the paid Substack subscribers. None of this would be possible without you. Everything that we do is supported through that. Right now, we're still 100% ad-free. We're sponsorship-free. And those paid subscriptions go towards everything. Just getting this content out, 
all of the social media content, all of the articles, article archives, all of our giveaways, all of our firefighter donations to injured firefighters and their families. And I couldn't do it without you. If you want to participate in that, just go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com. Click on that subscribe button. It's just $6 to support everything that we do, and it keeps us on the air, keeps us writing articles and doing what we do. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do any of this. We hit a milestone just last week. When it comes to free subscribers to the Substack, we're at 8,500, which is ridiculous. That's so many people that get the podcast and the articles directly into their inbox and are participating in the Hotshot Wake Up community. If you find yourself as a free subscriber and you have been for a year, six months, whatever it is, and you're constantly coming back to the content and find it useful, Think about starting a free trial or clicking on the subscribe button to be a paid subscriber and support the content that we put out. Again, it's just $6, but of those 8,500 free subscribers on Substack, thanks to you too, because you share what I do, you like what I do, you spread it around, and that just strengthens the message that I'm putting out there. And I really do appreciate that as well. Again, just go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com, click on that subscribe button, and you can become a part of the Hotshot Wake Up and support everything that we do. So thank you. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. So on May 9th, the Lessons Learned Center put out their 2022 report on chainsaw cuts. If you want to see this, it's wildfirelessons.blog. They do have a new site. Their old site was taken down or decommissioned. And this is for all the cutters out there or people who are working with chainsaws. It just gives you an idea of what can go wrong in the accidents that occurred. And I thought we'd briefly cover it. It's just a quick overview, and then we'll jump into the new legislation that's coming out when it comes to aircraft. But I thought I'd cover this. It says, Lessons from 2022 in Chainsaw Cuts. It says, Looking at the 2022 report and instances of chainsaw injuries, one number jumps out, more than twice as many cuts to swampers as Sawyers. Now, we covered this on a Substack episode, I think all the way back in February or something like that, but this provides just a little bit more detail than that report did. It asks, is this uncharacteristically high? They said, we don't know. Digging around to try to put this into context, it becomes apparent that no industry uses chainsaws the way that Wildland Fire Service does, in two-person teams working symbiotically, effectively, and rapidly. The details of these injuries are scant, and of the seven chainsaw cut injuries reported to Wildfire Lessons Learned Center, only one included more detailed information in the form of a rapid lessons sharing document. So what that tells us is when these chainsaws injuries occur, they're not getting a bunch of information on what actually happened surrounding the incident and getting a full picture of what went down. They were given small information bits which they go on to explain, where it says, one, a Sawyer had a three-inch gash to the wrist that end, ended up damaging tendons, a Sawyer with a laceration to the left arm, a Swamper with a four-inch laceration to the back of the leg, ouch, a Swamper with a cut to the shin and calf, a Swamper with a cut to the hand, a Swamper with a cut to the shin, and an eight-inch long, two-inch deep cut to the calf of another Swamper. So basically, they almost got their leg cut off. Now, for folks out there listening who don't know how saw teams work in the fire world, it is generally two people. If it's very busy and thick, we'll start throwing extra people into swamp. But you have your sawyer who is doing the cutting and your swamper who is pulling material away. And they are working in a very, very close proximity to each other. Oftentimes, the swamper has their hand on the sawyer's shoulder to let them know they're there. And there's this thing called a blood bubble. And basically, the blood bubble is this 
imaginary bubble that surrounds the tip of the chainsaw. And wherever the reach of that chainsaw can go in 360 around the Sawyer, that is the danger zone, and they call it the blood bubble. But then you're on initial attack, things are ripping, you're having fun, it's intense, and you start cutting very, very fast, and you start moving, and ultimately, accidents can happen. And with a chainsaw, they can be pretty bad accidents, like the swamper who had an 8-inch long, 2-inch deep cut to the calf, which you're, you're, you basically almost lost your leg, homie. It says, in the Moose Fire, chainsaw cut lessons learned from 2022, a swamper's leg was struck when the saw kicked back while cutting a small tree. The lessons learned highlight a lesson that can be applied across all types of Sawyer Swamper operations. It says swampers should locate themselves on the far side of the tree or farther away from the Sawyer. The very serious nature of these incidents is starkly revealed when we recalled the 2017 Lakeside Fire Chainsaw Incident fatality. A hand crew saw team was working on a steep, brushy rock slope in Southern California when a swamper lost his balance and fell onto the chainsaw bar, sustaining a serious cut to the back of his thigh. Several days later, he tragically died from his injuries in the hospital. Yes, unbelievable tragedy. I've seen chainsaw injuries in my day as well. People just putting it into their boot or hanging onto a stump when they set their saw down. And I've seen saws fall and the chain break being taken off by hitting a rock. And the pressure of the saw hitting the rock took the chain break off. It started to spin on idle and cut someone's wrist. Like there's a lot of weird quirky things that can happen. And this is just a reminder as we get into the heart of the season to the people who are around saws and cutting that it is it is dangerous and is well oiled of a team you are. And if you're on a saw team, you understand how important it is to be cohesive and you basically know what the other person is thinking just by looking at them. There's a lot of nonverbal communication happening with these people. But the lessons learned say, consider the impact of the work environment and human factors in creating situations in which chainsaw accidents are more likely. Working in difficult vegetation, steep slopes, and bad footing, 100%, that's where accidents are going to happen. Physical fatigue in either member of the SAW team. This is why SAW teams slam five-hour energies and pack half cans of chew into their lip. So they are at a heightened state of awareness, <laughs> basically 16 hours a day, and then we have them try to go to bed after feeding them sugar all day. And then you wonder why they're so depressed when they get home to regular society. <laughs> I mean, come on, folks. This is what we do. It says decreased mental acuity from lack of sleep, stress, and anxiety. Yeah, 100%. Pressure to complete work quickly and perceived pressure from a tight work spacing. Yep, watch your spacing. We say that all the time. Inexperience with the workflow and body mechanics of the Sawyer Swamper dynamic. So basically, if you have a new team that's put together, and that will happen. Let's say we get to a fuel type where it's super, super thick and heavy timber, heavy fuel loading but the digging is really easy. So it's easy for the dig line to put in that fuel break, but the Sawyers have a higher workload. You'll fire up a fourth saw team, maybe even a fifth saw team, and you start grabbing some experienced people and maybe some not-so-experienced people and putting them on teams together. And that new dynamic is when these incidents occur even more. And then there's the other side of it where Sawyers show up to a desert fire and there's really not much work at all. And then they have to join the dig line and they feel like they're in a North Korean slave camp and digging with their Pulaski. They're like, oh, this is so horrible. I just want to cut. And everybody in the dig line is like, yeah, cool. We got some more people. But I thought it was just a quick reminder of the dangers of all of this, of what can happen. And it's good to refresh on some of this stuff if you are part of the medical response or just that incident within an incident protocol that these crews have to really dial in what the response is if these sorts of things happen. I think it's a great reminder, and we're about to be in full swing, so I thought that was worth sharing. Now, on to this bill that was introduced in the Senate that is looking to expand the availability for what would be private aircraft 
for crew shuttles and crew transport. And it's a bill that is, was introduced in the U.S. Senate to allow leased planes and helicopters used for responding to wildfires to transport wildland firefighters. Current Federal Aviation Administration regulations only allow leased aircraft to be used for water drops and other fire suppression, but supports... But supporters say it's an unnecessary regulation and removing it would improve wildland fire response coordination between federal, state, and local agencies. Now let's read what this bill actually is. Not only would it uh, maybe increase response, it's also it opens up a whole new market for the private aviation industry within wildland fire. Like it really adds to the potential for flight hours and use time for apparatus. So this was introduced by Senator Mark Kelly and Senator Cynthia Loomis, who we've heard about a lot when it comes to wildfire. She's been very active. She's out of Wyoming. They introduced the Wildfire Response Aviation Modernization and Safety Act, bipartisan legislation that would cut through the red tape and allow wildfire response aircraft, both planes and helicopters, leased by a state or federal agency to transport wildland firefighters. The legislation builds on recommendations from the Wildland Fire Mitigation and Management Commission, which was established after Mitt Romney and Senator Kelly got their Wildland Fire Mitigation and Management Commission Act passed. Now, if you want to get caught up on what this commission is, again, on the Substack, we did multiple podcasts and articles about this commission. They were tasked with all sorts of things. But this is one of the recommendations that they put out in their preliminary paper, which, again, we covered in depth on the Substack. And it looks like senators are starting to take those recommendations and move forward with them. And it says current Federal Aviation Administration regulations only allow leased aircraft to be used for fire suppression operations. In many instances, the same aircraft that can safely carry fire crews when owned by government entities which include the U.S. Forest Service, cannot carry crews when leased for fire response. By removing this unnecessary regulation, this will improve that shortfall. Quote, longer and more extreme wildfire seasons are worsening the threat and health and safety of our communities, especially across Arizona, the senator said. Our wildland firefighters need every tool possible to keep us safe. Our legislation builds upon the recommendations of the Wildland Fire Mitigation and Management Commission by improving wildfire prevention and mitigation strategies in Arizona and across the West. I am grateful to Senator Loomis for her partnership on this idea. It's nice to see that more wildfire legislation is becoming bipartisan, and both the Democrats and Republicans are signing on to these things. That, that is a, a ray of hope. And I would like to see them support the Tim Hart Act in a bipartisan way as well, and hopefully that can get pushed through Congress. And as we, again, talked about on one of the podcasts on Substack, that the Tim Hart Act was recently reintroduced and is trying to make its way through Congress. Senator Loomis says, When wildfires break out in Wyoming, it is essential that personnel are deployed as quickly and efficiently as possible. The Wildfire Response Aviation Modernization and Safety Act just makes sense. It will allow us to use every safe aircraft at our disposal to get firefighters to wildfire areas and save lives, homes, and properties. I'm grateful to Senator Kelly and his work on this important legislation. Now, the International Association of Fire Chiefs chimed in and said, I commend Senators Kelly and Loomis for their leadership in introducing this act. As the nation continues to confront catastrophic wildfire, it's important that local fire departments are able to deploy resources effectively to combat wildfires. In order to deploy resources more effectively in a dynamic situation, the International Association of Fire Chiefs supports efforts to require the FAA to revise its guidance and allow fire-safe restricted category aircraft to both carry firefighters to the incident and engage in suppression opportunities. Like I was saying, this is a pretty big deal for companies that own helicopters and aircraft that can carry firefighters. Up until now, they've been vying for contracts for those suppression efforts, contracts to do tanker drops, contracts for cargo missions, contracts for fire suppression and bucket work when it comes to helicopters. 
But if this passes, and I'm kind of assuming it will because it's not very con- it's not a controversial bill, and it's supported by both parties at this point in time, so it should gain some sort of steam. And a mandated commission was the one that recommended that this happen. So if this does pass, and like I said, it looks like it will, you've basically just opened up another market. And if you are one of those companies, you're probably pretty excited to see this happen. Now, when it goes into place, if it goes through Congress and is signed off, I don't see like a massive change to how people operate. You know, the least ship that was doing bucket work that isn't a federal ship may now just start doing some cruise shuttles. Maybe cruise shuttles will increase. You know, maybe that's a possibility. The other question is, will it ultimately create more air traffic and more aircraft missions? If you're a wildland firefighter, you know that there's a helicopter flight checklist. And basically, the number one question is, is this flight necessary? Now, if you have a whole new market of aircraft available to shuttle crews, will we be more likely to say, hey, let's just fly them up? We got all these ships here. Let's just fly them up. And I'm not against that, but I think we should still adhere to the checklist and because it's there for a reason. Most checklists happen because of fatalities. You have fatalities and they're like, okay, this is why it happened. We should probably create a checklist so this doesn't happen again. So I'm all for, you know, making tools and equipment available for all aspects of wildland firefighting, but let's just not get more laxed on how we ultimately implement these crew shuttles and how often we do them. Will it create more hours for pilots? Maybe. Will it increase fatigue for crew and pilots? Possibly. But we have rules in place to mitigate that kind of thing as well. But I thought it was interesting that these things are going down. And on the flip side of what we talked about with Calf Canyon and Hermit's Peak and the FEMA legislation, this is like a government regulation that's kind of been fast-tracked. The commission put out their preliminary report months ago, but in the time it takes Congress to do much of anything, this is relatively fast for them putting this together and trying to get it out. So we'll follow up on that and see where it goes. Congress is basically getting to a point where we have this debt ceiling in place. There's agency people and firefighters reaching out saying, hey, how is this going to affect us? How is it going to affect us? You know, you don't really know the answer to that unless we actually do default and don't raise the debt ceiling and ultimately you have a government shutdown. But if history plays a role in how we view reality, they're basically probably going to pass something at the last second possible. And really the only thing that's going to be affected is the stock market and maybe lending prices in the credit market, which if we're just digging line and cutting and engaged in operations to suppress wildfires, that shouldn't affect us too much. But we'll keep an eye on it and follow up on it and see what happens as we get closer. That deadline for the debt ceiling, because there are people asking about it, they're saying it's like around early June, like they're saying maybe June 8th, June 10th, the, the country would default on their loans if they don't pass anything. So we still got a little bit of time before that comes up. But as May ends and we get into June, if there isn't any sort of solution, you know, it's probably something I'll pay a little bit closer attention to because maybe, maybe it'll affect some folks. The last time the government shut down, it was during the end of the fire season. And the only thing that really happened is crews that were supposed to be on for another week or two, they just called them all and said, hey, just drive into the shop, drop all your stuff off, we're done for the season. And really, at that point in time, fire season wasn't ramming, so it didn't cause a lot of issues. The other thing I'm going to be following up on the next podcast, there's likely to be some new information out on the retardant lawsuit And that's gaining some steam. All parties involved are becoming more active in voicing their opinion on it, whether it is the retardant companies, the tanker companies, the environmentalists, the people suing, the politicians. It's a a big deal. It, It really is. And so we'll follow up on that. I'm following that very closely. We're just waiting for the judge to make some sort of decision. Good luck to all the hotshot crews up in Canada. There's a lot of folks that are happy that you're there. To all the other crews that are down in the United States, whether it's Hell Attack Engines, Hotshot Crews, Type 2 IAs, 
things are slowly starting to pick up. There's tons of prescribed fire that's getting done. And in my opinion, that's a great way to warm up for the season. You're still seeing fire. You're still putting fire on the ground. And it kind of gets everything in line and gets the gears greased for when things really start rolling. Again, thank you to all the paid Substack subscribers. If you want to participate, there's a link below. Just go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com. Click on that subscribe button. Just $6, and it supports everything that we do here. To all the free subscribers, there's 8,500 of you now, which is crazy. I'm going to do something when we hit 10,000 free subscribers because that's massive. Like, that's a huge mailing list at that point in time. I haven't figured out what. It's probably going to be some great big giveaway. But to those free subscribers, again, if you find yourself constantly coming back to the content and listening, just think about trying a free trial or subscribing to support what you so frequently come back to. If you can't afford the $6, hey, that's cool. Just like and share the work that we do here. Help spread the word. And that's appreciated as well. So thank you very, very much to everyone out there. It's a community that's grown drastically over the last year. I'm humbled by it, and I appreciate all of the support that's taking place. A couple great interviews are also coming up in the next couple weeks, so look for those on the Substack as well. We're going to interview some mental health people, some indigenous folks who are geared towards that prescribed burning and... What, what we call good fire. And it should be great, great things coming out of that. So that'll be on the Substack as well. So thank you. Remember, if you haven't talked to someone in a while, reach out, see how they're doing. Check in on your homies. Eat good. Get some exercise. Hydrate. Stretch. If you're a couple, you should do yoga together. I think that's good. There's plenty of gals that... Uh, I wish I did more yoga with them. They were always doing yoga, and I was like, ah, ho-hum, I'll stretch later. Uh, But really, I should have just downward dogged a little bit and collected my zen. And uh, I think it's good for couples to do that sort of thing together. Make sure you get the rest that you need, because that's really important for the recovery process. But as always, when you get up, you got to get it done. Yeah.